Now, here's the thing. Most, at least intellectually, can get behind that. For the most part. There are just some people that is a little hard to see with God's eyes, through God's eyes. Some people who are problems uh, with us. Some people who are not just different, but difficult. And we get, at least get to our, the point that maybe in our heads we get it, but in our hearts we're having trouble seeing the hearts of others as God does. In fact, it's almost impossible. Those who are dramatically differ from us as we try to deal with them. We need to recognize that not only do we need to see people through God's eyes. The key is that we need to see people through God's eyes of love. You know, we just God's eyes. Okay, what does that mean? And he looks at the heart we talked about last week. But ultimately, it's looking at others through God's eyes of love. Changing our glasses. And how do we do that? We do that by recognizing two different things that need to change within us, so to speak. At least many of us. There are two things. Now, today we're only going to be able to cover one of those things. Just in the time that we have. And next week we'll get to that second thing which really follows the first that i'm going to share with you today they they go hand in hand with one another and so here's the thing if we are going to look through god's eyes of love we need to recognize that we are all broken that's where we start if we're really going to see through god's eyes of love we need to begin by recognizing that we are all broken and that's why we're looking at the story of zacchaeus Zacchaeus here in uh, Luke chapter 19, and it begins, And there was a man called by the name Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And you know what? Let's just get it over with. All right? Because I know some of you are thinking about it. Let's just, let's just, let's just get it over with. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree, for the Lord would come to see. And when the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. For I'm going to your house today. There we go. Well, maybe that should be on our list. No, no. It's a familiar song to some, maybe a favorite to, to even some people, but I'm probably pretty sure about this. It would not be a favorite of Zacchaeus. I mean, I know he came to Christ in a wonderful way and his heart was changed, but, you know, this whole emphasis, much of the emphasis is a wee little man and a wee little man was he... Uh, that's how you, not really how you want to be remembered in song. I, I can only see Zach being like, why are you hating on me? You know, just because I'm vertically challenged. What if I made some comment about you being horizontally? Uh, you know, yeah. you know it, it's just not. And, and 
And it's not just that. The reality is, those people who were right there that day, who thinking of a song about Zacchaeus? Oh, it's actually not some cute song. Not some children's song. It would not be G-rated. They were going to sing something about Zacchaeus. You know, not so much about the smallness of his stature, but the smallness of his character, the smallness of his importance in their eyes. And yet he was somebody, but it was he was nobody. Nobody wanted to deal with him except Jesus right here in this day. Jesus saw him. Jesus, who is our example, looked right at him through eyes of love, despite the fact that Zacchaeus was not only not good, he was downright bad. But Jesus looked through eyes of love, saw his brokenness, knew everything about him, and still loved him. Have you ever noticed that it's much how much easier it is for us to be able to see people who are broken and messed up around us? Or we just somehow just be able to see that. You know, we can't see the good, but we see all the bad, all the things that at least we think, those who are living life different from us, those who are wrong, we can see that so easily, which is the way people saw Zacchaeus. And we need to understand that it's not a prejudice they had towards him because he was rich or because he was powerful. No, he had some real issues that went way off the rails. How far off? I mean, I can only imagine, just think about him growing up, being shorter, especially in those days, and the way they viewed people and how they talked, especially in those who were uh, good enough before God, in, even on the physical types of things, in his smaller stature, that maybe he wasn't taken seriously, maybe there was no respect. But he got respect. When he became a tax collector and worked his way up to be the chief tax collector, now he was big, rich, and powerful. And now he could look down on people. He was the chief publican, the chief tax collector. He was the head of all the tax collectors in that region. So not only was he not just an evil tax collector, he was the head of evil. You know, he, he, was, the, he was the one. And tax collectors were usually considered uh, cheats, liars, thieves, strong-armed thugs working for a corrupt, evil empire that ruled with an iron fist. There was nothing right, there was nothing good seen about tax collectors. As far as anyone would look at a tax collector, there's no way they would see that. What happened was, as long as the Romans got the money that they were supposed to be getting, it was pretty much like they can interpret the law any way they want. They could just say what should be coming this way in taxes and just get all kinds of extra taxes above and beyond what the Romans wanted, which then give them their pay and line their pockets, getting rich while they're making others poor through their extortion. They were not only taking advantage of their own people, but they were working for the enemy. They were a part of the oppression. They were the worst kind of traitors. They were seen as sellouts that sold out their own people and God for filthy gain. They were seen as hypocrites who didn't have any real faith in God. Tax collectors were the worst among the worst. I mean, we read that even, uh, we're in chapter 9 of Luke, Luke 
chapter 19 of Luke. Just go to chapter 18 and verse 9 of Luke. Just probably a page over for most of you. To some, in verse 9 of chapter 18 in Luke, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Thank you, God, I'm not, you know, think about what he's saying there. He goes through all this, this whole list, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, not even like this tax collector. That's like the last of the list, like the worst of the worst is the tax. I'm not even like this tax collector. That's how bad it was. And yet we see in what Jesus is saying here in Luke 18, that whole sense that people did not see themselves as broken. It's coming before God like I'm. I'm not like them. I'm not broken. I mean, they're broken. They're really messed up, but not me. In the midst of all this and all that background, in front of all these people, Jesus calls Zacchaeus by name, which is kind of ironic if you think about it, because Zacchaeus, which was apparently a uh, a common name of that day. Zacchaeus, the actual name, meant righteous, innocent, or pure. Not even close. Right? Not even close. Especially in those days when names had more meanings than they do now. The actual name and what it was about had so much more meaning. Here is this, his name means righteous or, or innocent or pure. There's probably some people who didn't even want to say his name. I'm not even going to, I mean, is there people like that? You don't even want to say their name out loud. You don't want to be anywhere around them. But here's Jesus. Here's Jesus. Who, knowing everything, is looking at Zacchaeus to eyes of love. And he looks up, he notices him, he speaks to him. When everyone else would just as much let him fade and not even see him and would just prefer he not be anywhere around. Are there some people we just want to pretend like they don't aren't there? That we wouldn't give even a nod to, you know, one of those... You know, not wave at... If we had our way, we'd be going, you know, uh, that's about what we want to do. Are we seeing others through the eyes of Jesus, the eyes of love of Jesus? It was a shock that Jesus acknowledged Zacchaeus' presence. And the people were certainly shocked, but maybe there's some that just thought, wait, 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 this could be good. Jesus is going to take him down. Jesus is going to let him know 
what for. Jesus is going to call out his sin and bring the pain for all the hurt he's done. Zacchaeus is going to just be known for the real kind of evil he really is. This is going to be good. That's obviously somebody that's not looking through eyes of love. They're just looking to see that somebody gets what they got coming to them. Are the people when we are looking at them that we're looking just to see what they got coming to them? Sometimes that's an easy question to answer. Just have to look at your Facebook page. But if Jesus hadn't already shocked them by pointing out Zacchaeus, he was about to knock their sandals off. Here it is. As he says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Hey, let's say, you know, wow. I mean, that's a shock in itself. Mark, I'm coming over to your house today, buddy. Thanks. You know, that's not so bad. But, you know, this is a whole different thing. I say that, but Jesus saying that to Zacchaeus. What was he thinking? Immediately, it says, so, so he went and came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mutter. They began to grumble. The word there is like a sound of a bunch of bees. So it was heard. It was, you know, it was a muttering that you could just hear in the crowd. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Not just any sinner, but one of the worst. As far as they were concerned, there was no hope for Zacchaeus. In fact, as far as many were concerned, they didn't want there to be any hope for Zacchaeus. No love. No hope for him. How do we see people? Are we looking at them through the eyes of Jesus? Are we just seeing someone who is broken beyond repair? And what do you do with something that's broken beyond repair? You just throw it out. You discard it. Is that what's happening? It seems as almost as if people did not see themselves as sinners. It's like, he's gone to go to the house of a sinner. Reality was, if Jesus picked anyone there, he would be going to the house of a sinner. That's why he came for all of them, including the Zacchaeuses. In fact, as we says in verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Romans 3, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already been charged that all Both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. All are broken. In our relationship with God... And beyond. Some still have difficulty with this. And I'm sure that's what those people were thinking in those days. And what church people think today. Oh, I'm not as bad as that person. 
Sure, I'm not perfect. But my brokenness is at a whole different level. My, my sin and what I'm doing is not the same as somebody like that person. It is not, it's not the same. And while there's a sense that not all sin has the same consequences here on earth, that there are different things that go with that. The truth is, James chapter 2 verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but falls, fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. In one point, it, that we are not doing, that, that we are doing something that we shouldn't be doing, that we are saying something that we shouldn't, that we are thinking something that we shouldn't. More than that, that we are not doing what we should be doing, that we are not saying what we should be think, saying, we are not thinking what we should be thinking. Guilty in one point, we are guilty of it all. We're broken in this, in our relationship with God. All we have to do is just one place. We are all in the same boat. And it's got a bunch of holes in it. It's sinking. We might think that the size of our sin is different than somebody else's. But the fact is, the same size nail was driven through Jesus' hands for your sin as it was for the other person's sin. No different. And the size of nail that was driven through, this same nail. Why is it we so easily recognize those who are messed up and fail to recognize our own sense of being messed up and where we are in different areas? None of us have arrived. We're not perfect. It's sanctification is about that. There's a sense of how God looks at us. Yes, that, that we have been forgiven, that we are. But there's also that sense that we are in a process of becoming holy as He is holy. We are in a process of becoming more like Jesus. And we're not there any more than anybody else. God wants us to understand that lost people look like all people. We're the same. God's bar is high for everyone. And we don't measure up. We can't make the jump in so many areas. But somehow we feel better because we're not like the tax collector or whoever it is in our minds that fits the Zacchaeus. Those people who are different and those people who are differ, who differ with us in, in action and attitude, even those people who, uh, to the point, actually cause us pain. We can see them and we just cut off dealing with them because of their sin. We don't do that for everybody, but there's certain people, you know, that are just really different from us. But are they? Well, I don't sin. I'm not as wrong. It's, it's black and white. What they It's very black and white in the Word, what it says about them. Well, it's pretty black and white what the Word says about us. Unfortunately, what's happened in, even within evangelicalism or fundamentalism, whichever you want to put yourself in, there are those acceptable sins in church. The, those that, hey, that, that not only is not bad, but we don't even talk about. 
We don't even, and I don't mean we don't talk about it because we're embarrassed to talk about it. I mean we don't talk about it because we really don't think it's that big of a deal. It's okay. Oh, boy, you see, did you see what so-and-so the other day did and said? Woo-hoo. Man, I'm part of this church. I, I, I think they're part of this church, aren't they? Maybe they're not a member. I don't know. But, you know, I probably shouldn't say. But, whew, let me just tell you what, what, what I know. Anybody with me? Here we are. Talking about their sin and gossiping. And yet that's acceptable. That's not seen as something that is broken. That's not seen as something that is as bad as them. If you're guilty of breaking the law in one place, you're guilty of breaking it all. For us to recognize, for us to be able to look at eyes of love, like the love of Jesus has, we need to recognize our own brokenness and not think somehow that we are better. Now, you probably think uh, I'm getting at something that many of you have heard about as we're thinking about this. There's a phrase that's often used. Uh, and that is, love the sinner, hate the sin. But is that true? And you're probably thinking, well, I'm going to say it's true because what I've been saying is that we need to look at others through the eyes of love of Jesus. Through eyes of God's love. But is loving the sinner and hating the sin not only the right way, but the best way to say this? And before I get into it biblically, let me just ask practically, is that really possible? To love the person and yet hate their sin? For many people, uh, many people who are saying that phrase cannot separate the two. You cannot really look at someone. You can look and see there's part of them that's good. That's really what we're saying. There's a part of them. And maybe we even say that most of them is good. But there's a part of them that's not. And so that's not loving the sinner and hating the sin. That is hating the sinner, at least partly, but loving the sinner as well. We're doing both. Does that really work? In fact, there are many who would say oftentimes the perception... That the other person has. That the other person has of those of us who are saying, well, I love the sinner, but I hate the sin. To them, that's a problem. Because the sin is not only a, a choice that they're making that we don't respect. But for many, they would say the sin is something they don't have control over. More than that, many would say that that sin that we're supposed to hate is a part of defining who they are as a person. They see themselves as that. So when you say, I love the sinner but hate the sin, you're saying you hate that which they see as a part of themselves that they have no control over, etc. Now, I'm not saying that that's truth. But I am saying that's how they truly feel. 
And what then gets communicated in this love the sinner, hate the sin? What really comes across? We're trying to make the distinction, but in their mind, God has not helped them to see that there is a distinction yet. In fact, unfortunately for many, they define their lives by what they're doing, by their behavior, by their choices instead of by what God looks at and sees in them. Can we really separate those two? And saying loving the person and hating the sin when it's all same. So while this is a difficult position to actually pull off practically, let's just ask, is it biblical? And the short answer to that is kind of, kind of not. Okay? You've probably never heard somebody say this. Because usually there's the people that are talking about this and they just say it and that's the way it is and that's what you believe. And there's other people who think that's a bunch of baloney. You know, we don't love those people. We just need to hate them. I mean, it's not really what they said, but that's what's communicated. What I'm about to share with you may sound like even that this is contradicting the message this morning, but it is, it is not if you just hold with me to the end, if you just listen. First off, it is true that God hates sin. In fact, let's look at a passage here. There are six things in which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. God hates those sins. He does say that. And we say, love the sinner, hate the sin. So, kind of, the reason I say kind of, because we got to keep reading. Verse 18. A heart that devises wicked plans. What does God hate? A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that run rapidly to evil. And if we aren't getting personal yet, 19 gets personal. A false witness who utters lies and one who spreads strife among brothers. That is what the Lord hates. So in this right here, in black and white, it doesn't just say God hates sin. It says God hates the sinner. And somebody like, no, 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 that does not mean you're just, you're just reading into that. Well, you know, I'm not going to take the time for you to just kind of let that soak in and to think about it. You can write that down and deal with it. Let's go to some other verses because it's not fair just to pick one, right? Psalm 11, verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Psalm 5, 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. How many right now are going... (laughs) You know? It doesn't stop here. That's what I say. Walk with me. But we got to look at the whole word. Not just say what we want it to say, but recognize what does it say and understand it. And that perhaps this phrase is not always the best phrase to love the sinner or hate the sin. You see, in this passage, we see God does hate. We look at these. It's obvious. 
And it can be confusing. But in some ways, everything can be confusing when it comes to us fully comprehending God's thoughts because we are not God. It can be confusing in part because this is God and He can do both. So to speak. Secondly, we need to make an important distinction here in keeping in mind. God is love, 1 John 4. God is love. Nowhere does it say, God is hate. And so, the very character of who God is, the very nature of His whole being is love, and yet He does hate. It's something He does in this. Love is who He is. And so to love the sinner and hate the sin, the problem is in saying that sometimes we get this idea that yes, sin is bad, but the sinners are good and just lovable, misguided individuals of which God is okay with because He's love. But that's not what the Bible says. That's not the truth. Even as we talk about hate, And and all of this to understand Ezekiel chapter 33 verse 10. God says he takes no pleasure. He takes no delight in the death of the wicked. It's not the hate that just wants to kill and destroy. He takes no pleasure. He can be both. And we might find it hard to grasp in our very feeble, limited kind of way. Uh, But think about in this way of explaining uh, a way of explaining it. It's possible for a kid to do something that is blatantly wrong that their father told them not to do and they went and did it. You don't have to raise your hands, by the way. Uh, It is possible to do that. And when dad comes home to face the wrath of the father and yet him still love his child. Uh, it's a very feeble kind of illustration because us and God are not the same. But when we see wrath, which is part of, in a sense, the, the definition of hate, is they deal with that wrath and yet love together. Here's the other thing that confuses us, that we're working off of the human definition of hate. And some of people think, well, you're just kind of stretching the truth with all this and, you know, kind of playing. It's about semantics. But anybody who's been going to church for any length of time knows that you've probably heard somebody or somebody say, God's definition of love is not the same as our definition of love. That the very words in the Bible, not to mention the concept of love, is different than our human concept of love. And if we've come to believe that and know that is true, so too is the very concept of hate within the Bible, as it talks about here with God, is different than our human concept of hate. If we're talking about love and hate, if the concept is biblically, divinely different than human, so too is the hate as we think about it. The definition of hate as it applies to God is not something that is filled with anger and bitterness and unforgiveness and self-centered selfishness. It has to do with favor or disfavor. It has to do with divine displeasure towards us who are in rebellion towards Him. And the justice that is demanded towards those who therefore 
because they are in rebellion, are his enemies. And rebellion is sin. So here's the thing. God has therefore hate towards the enemies. In the divine definition of that, displeasure. And all of us are his enemies. Or at least at one point, were his enemies. But even though that is what he has, that is not who he is. For he is love. And how does his love work out? We see in Romans chapter 5. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore now we have been justified by his love, how much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. If while we were enemies, and we think enemies and in our human definition of hate, there is no room for love. There is no room for what is the next part of this sentence. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How much more now are we reconciled? Shall we be saved by his life? This is what comes down when the rubber meets the road. How does it apply to us? First of all, at least to be cautious about that phrase. How can I continue on? To say to look through God's eyes of love. Because that's who God is. Not what he does. Not, not, not just that. That's who he is. His love. This is who we need to be. And, and here's the thing. As it deals with our life. Nowhere in the scriptures are we commanded or instructed to hate. We say God we read, God hates not just the evil or the sin, but the, the sinner in the sense of the divine definition of that. But nowhere does that transfer to us because we are not God. We don't get that. And we are not instructed to hate. In fact, just the opposite of that. In 1 John 3, verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 1 John 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen. And he cannot love God, therefore, whom he has not seen. It's pretty serious. And we're trying to figure out, well, what does this mean? God's made it pretty clear to us. Not just instructing us not to hate, but the commands over and over to love. And not just people who are like us, not just people who we like, and not even just people who like us. But people who hate us. We are to look at through the eyes of God and His love. We see that in this passage in Luke chapter 6. Verse 22, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. 
Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slacks you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you are good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. We should be different. Not just love those who like us, not just love those who love us back, but look at them through Jesus' eyes of love, even those who are our enemies, who hate us. I mean, what he's saying here, think about it. If we're to love our enemies, there's really no one left to hate. There's no one on the list left. We're commanded to love all. In fact, the second greatest commandment, Jesus said, is to love your neighbor as yourself. We'll get into that somewhere down the road this year, but our neighbor very clearly is everybody. Everyone is my neighbor. So perhaps, as we think about that phrase, love the sinner and hate the sin, perhaps we should just narrow it down and say, love the sinner. Period. To love the sinner. Oh, somebody's saying Oh, but, 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 oh, but they're doing wrong. It's wrong. And I say, yes, it is. Well, at least what I think you're talking about. Sometimes it's not because it's just a church thing, uh, religious, legalistic thing. But how many times? Are we also wrong? That we also are broken? How can we not look at them through eyes of love? Well, but because it's wrong. Yes, it is, and it will continue to be wrong. That's not the point. Rather, we think that somehow that if we show love to someone, we are agreeing, even approving of their sinful choices. Even saying that it's okay, that they can just do whatever they want. But that's not what we said to them. At least I hope that's not what we said to them. But this kind of logic that we can't love like God loves because somehow that's going to approve or somehow that's going to give it, that kind of logic in general makes no sense on so many different levels that you can't show love to the person without sending the wrong message. If that's true, then God got it wrong when He so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son. What was he thinking? If that's is this whole logic, what, what, what was he really thinking? God sent his one and only son out of love. I mean, really. He's just telling people it's okay to do whatever they want. He's just telling by, by, by loving and showing this love. He's just saying it's not really wrong that, or they don't have to worry about it. He's got it covered. He loves them anyway. Is that what God is saying? No. Very clearly in the word of God, that's not what he's saying. And yet this whole logic that we can't love because somehow we will condone the sin 
then God did it. By blatantly loving us. While we were yet enemies, Romans 5.8, or beyond Romans 5.8, there. God loved us. Without condoning or giving approval to our sin. God was able to do both, and so can we. To the Zacchaeuses of the world. That will care a little bit more about what we think when they know that we care a little bit more about them. Now let's face it. In all of this. I just want to tag on this part because there are some people like. Pastor. I got love for sinners out there. I understand I am one too. And I, I, I got love because that's I know that's what Jesus says. I can't expect sinners to act like saints. I get it. But the person I have a problem with is not that sinner. It's one of the saints in my life. One of the saints in my church that I have a problem with. is one of the, the people who are supposed to know better. The people who are supposedly Christians that are acting like the devil at times, and just the sinning and the things they're doing, and I just can't look at them through the eyes of the love of Jesus. Now, obviously, we read earlier, and you just look through, read through First John about how we're supposed to love our brother, which, by the way, doesn't just mean a male; it's that sense of brothers, sisters, all of us, right? I mean, I wonder sometimes if the saints of old actually would show up at churches today. And be just like they were. I don't mean dress like they were. But I mean they would be just like they were. You know. With all their problems. With the same problems they had in the past. Whew. Some of those leaders not only would never be on any kind of leadership. They would be kind of. Let's just put this person off the side. Maybe they want to go to a different church. You know. Think about what went on. With some of these early ones. Adulterers, murderers, deceivers, liars. Serious problems. Until God got a hold, and not just until God got a hold of them and saved, they were already believers. They were already walking with God, so to speak, and yet they had these problems. And I realize that Christians can be jerks sometimes. Certain ones, right? Not, not, not you. But what are we saying? That we only, that God only calls us to love the lost? That it's okay that we don't love those who are in the family of God? We need to look at everyone through the eyes of Jesus' love. For all that matters, whoever it is that we have a problem with, I mean, Jesus has made it very clear in his statement here. Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We're all broken. There's all something, some way that God needs to work in our life. 
This is who Jesus came for. And it makes a difference in how we do this. It makes a difference. When we are different and really showing love to somebody, it matters that we are looking at them through Jesus' eyes of love. We may not feel like it. The person is so difficult, like we're ever going to make an impact. And maybe we won't. In part, we're just obeying what God has told us to do. We're just trying to be like Jesus. But there is a part that it can make a difference. I have a video that I want to show you. It, it, it's uh, not a dramatic Zacchaeus, bad kind of person, but it is a difference that one woman made in some really, really problem. Heathen little children, so to speak. And a letter. So let's just see how this person looks through the eyes of Jesus and shows Jesus' love. Dear Miss Donna, it's been over two decades since you taught me and yet it only seems like yesterday. I bet you never thought you'd hear from me. I remember your first Sunday in our all-boys Bible class. We were hardly angelic, nor eager to break in yet another rookie teacher. As you soon learned, we were little guys who had already experienced a lifetime of heartache. Some of us had divorced parents. A few of us were abused emotionally, verbally, and physically. You name it. Many of us were friendless children. Some of us were too short, too fat, too poor, too weird, or too something. We were a collection of misfits, and church was about the only place left that didn't hurt us. I must confess, I remember little of what you told us, Miss Donna, but don't think for a moment that you failed your mission. You built a foundation of faith that continues in my life today. I remember one Sunday morning, the day everything changed for me. You'd already logged several weeks in the trenches, and after the umpteenth time we'd disrupted, demoralized, or been discourteous to you, I asked, why do you stay? Why don't you leave, like the others? Do you remember what you said? You pointed to a picture of the cross and said that Jesus died for me and never quit when times were tough. You told me how people ridiculed, rebelled against, and rejected him. You then said something I'll never forget. You said that Jesus loves me so intensely that he willingly endured it all so that everyone could know his love. And sometimes those who love Jesus need to do the same so others will know his love. You don't know this, but I was blown away by what you said. You loved me without condition. You saw what I could be, not who I was. It was then that I saw Jesus, not just in your eyes, but in your hands and your heart. You became Jesus in the flesh to a little boy 
I was never the same again. As time passed, you taught me truths from God's word. I'll forever be grateful to you for leading me where I could not go, nor dared to try. Today, I'm a Sunday school teacher, all because you saw something in me that no one else did. I thank God for you, Miss Donna. You were God's gift to a little boy who merely craved love. So when you feel discouraged and think you're not causing much change when you teach, I know that still happens sometimes. Just think of me and remember what you taught me. Our God is the master of miracles. I am your miracle. Rick. We have no idea the difference that we can make by just looking at someone through the eyes of love of Jesus. And sometimes having Jesus' love means that we endure not just people who are different from us, but people who are difficult with us. Because that's what he did. I mean, I know right away it may be something we find out in heaven someday. But all in all, we do it because we're no different. Because we were lost and found. We were blind. Now we see. As the worship team starts to come up, I just want us to sing the first verse of Amazing Grace together. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but Jesus came to seek and to save what was lost. In fact, at that very first beginning of his ministry, Jesus said, as he stood in the temple and he unrolled the scroll, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of slight sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. As he rolled up that and sat down, he said, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And even yet today, Jesus wants that to be fulfilled in our hearing as he is here with us. His love is not just us and whatever might be going on, but for those who are going through different things, those who are uh, needing freedom. Recovery of sight, being released 
in some way. So as we close out, so to speak, I just want to give you that opportunity uh, as we stand together to sing this last song to recognize that we are a part of the kingdom of God that is here and now. And with His love to be able to do this. So if you're here today and there's a need in your life and you want someone to pray with you, I know, you know, so, well, we just prayed last week. Well, there's probably some people who didn't pray and just because you prayed last week doesn't mean, you know, I don't know how many of you just eat on Sunday and don't eat until next Sunday. (laughs) But maybe there's a a special need even uh, as it deals with uh, healing. Uh, it says, if anyone is sick, let him call the elders of the church and anoint him with oil. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. And it just is that's your opportunity by you coming and calling the elders and for us to, to pray for you if there's some way in that. And we say what God wants to do. So let's stand together.